Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Today we have a very interesting topic, which relates to neurological prognostication after cardiac arrest. And I'm very honored and pleased to have as our guest, Dr. Fred Rincon, who's Associate Professor of Neurology and Neurological Surgery at Thomas Jefferson University and a neurointensivist of the Division of Neurotrauma and Critical Care, Department of Neurological Surgery. Fred, I think, is not only a dear friend, but perhaps one of the most qualified people to talk about this topic. Fred has done extensive training and is board certified in internal medicine and critical care medicine through the American Board of Internal Medicine in neurology, vascular neurology, and neurocritical care. In addition, he has a master's in public health and bioethics and is a fellow of the American College of Physicians, the American College of Chest Physicians, and the American Heart Association, and a member of several critical care and neurocritical care societies. I am very honored and happy to have a good friend on the podcast today. Welcome, Fred. Thank you, Sergio. Thank you for having me here. So I think that this is obviously a topic that is dear to your heart, and uh, you've seen both sides of the coin, both as your critical care internal medicine training, but also your neurology and neurocritical care training. And I think that ultimately, it's also an area that has evolved significantly in the last decade. So as all of us are aware, the outcomes of patients who suffer out of hospital and in, in hospital cardiac arrest are still devastating. And even though we call it cardiac arrest, the true issue is anoxic brain injury. And that's what ultimately determines how these patients who survive do in terms of returning to a meaningful life. So Fred, as we start exploring and diving into how do we most accurately predict or tell families what to expect from a neurological standpoint after a loved one has uh, undergone or had a cardiac arrest, I would like to, to just ask you in general terms, where do you stand today in terms of targeted temper management and therapeutic hypothermia? What are you doing in your practice for a patient who has a V-fib arrest out of the hospital, is brought to the hospital, and after return circulation is not waking up or is comatose? Uh, Sergio, I think that I agree with you in everything that you mentioned before is a devastating condition. And at the end of the day, what matters is how you would survive or how would the patient survive. At the end of the day, it's really how much brain injury the patient sustained. So uh, when I deal with these patients in my practice, the first thing that I keep in mind is probably not to rush to conclusions too early in the, uh, in the onset of the disease. So the first message would be wait probably don't try to uh, prognosticate early on. And the reason for that is because of the advances in resuscitation medicine that ha have not um, happened only in the intensive care unit or pre-hospital level. So at the pre-hospital level, we have better access to AED, CPR, bystander CPR because of all the campaigns that have um, happened in terms of uh, bystander education. We have better technologies now. AEDs are primarily the ones that probably are saving a lot of lives. And then the access to the chain of survival that we all learned, you know, when we were taking our ACLS. So all those, those variables have contributed to a change in the, um, in the outcome of this condition. So many patients are surviving now more after they arrive to the hospital after cardiac arrest. Then the second thing are the advances in critical care, as you mentioned, primarily 
um, uh, neuroprotective strategies that uh, were tested in clinical trials uh, recently and that have demonstrated improvement in survival and functional outcome, primarily temperature management. So because of all of that, right, you have to consider that prior reports, prior studies that have shown um, different um, uh, proportions of prognosis may have changed after all of the implementation of these uh, technologies. Hypothermia and temperature management change radically the way that we approach this, and we have learned over the last 10 years after the clinical trials um, were, um, were reported and after we started implementing hypothermia uh, post-cardiac arrest is that we probably need to be a little bit more uh, um, conservative in terms of approaching your prognosis. So that would be sort of like the first thing that I would uh, emphasize uh, to all of the intensivists and all of the providers that deal with this condition um, uh, today. Excellent. So I think that as a here, very actionable and very powerful messages, number one is clearly we have strategies now that help protect the brain and can mitigate the effects of anoxic brain injury after cardiac arrest. And that is, like you mentioned, the targeted temperature management. That will be maybe the topic of another podcast, diving into the specifics of where the literature stands there. But obviously doing that for the right patient makes a difference. And I, and I hear loud and clear your message, Fred, that especially because of this and because hypothermia or targeted temperature management has changed the natural course of anoxic brain injury after these types of insults, we have to be very careful how we utilize certain tools and when we utilize these tools to uh, prognosticate neurological recovery. So with those two very, I think, strong messages, let's uh, dive into some of the specific aspects and tools that we utilize or have available for establishing a neurological prognosis after a cardiac arrest, and then maybe at the end, discuss what a reasonable general approach would be based on the available literature and based on your opinion. So, Fred, I would like to ask you, traditionally, we've always started with a physical exam. And uh, tell me a little bit about what are physical findings that may be useful in terms of determining prognosis in patients who suffer a cardiac arrest and how you would use them. Yeah, so the first thing um, that I will look into is post-cardiac arrest to assess if the patient is a candidate for uh, temperature management, right? Is to see how good they are uh, post-cardiac arrest immediately after the resuscitation period, because you know that one of the uh, requirements is that the patient needs to remain in a comatose state in order to uh, you know, uh, be eligible for, for temperature management. So if the patient is waking up immediately after the cardiac arrest, starts to open the eyes and point commands and localizing, probably you have to reconsider how aggressive you want to be in terms of temperature management for that particular patient. For the patient that remains in a comatose state and that you are actually uh, indicating the use of, uh, of temperature management, then while you wait for uh, the uh, the standard period, which is usually 24 hours, and then the rewarming period. The physical exam is the strongest predictor, believe it or not, of, uh, of neurological recovery. This has been tested uh, recently. Dave Greer, uh, when he was at the university, uh, at Yale University, I'm sorry, he, um, he redid the original studies done in the 1980s uh, with a better cohort and in the area, in, in the area of hypothermia. What he found was that, for example, the pupillary reflexes and the motor exam were strong predictors of, uh, of prognosis. That means that if you still have pupillary reflexes after rewarming, 
And if you are localizing, not having posturing or abnormal uh, responses to painful stimulation, and those are the ones that we call either flexion or extension posturing. Uh, if you don't have those and if you're localizing and you're doing spontaneous movements that look like meaningful, probably your prognosis is going to be uh, good. So those are the things that I am always looking when I'm examining these patients uh, post-rewarming. And we will talk a little bit about that later, what's the right timing to do it. But the pupillary uh, reflexes and the motor exam are the stronger predictors. So I think that if I get this right, Fred, clearly immediately after having returned to spontaneous circulation, before we do any interventions, um, if somebody's following commands, that tells you that probably is not the best candidate. But other findings in that immediate post-arrest situation are usually not very helpful, correct? That's correct. And once, and once we do the rewarming or we treat them with targeted temperature management for 24 hours and then we do the rewarming, that's when certain physical findings, like you said, the lack of pulmonary reaction or the response to motor stimuli can be useful. But as you said, there's also a time frame in which the absence or, or, or of these findings becomes more powerful. And I guess we'll touch about that a little bit later, but that is very, very important. I think, again, uh, we'll talk about other aspects or tools, but emphasizing what you just said, that the power of the physical exam when the right findings are found at the right timing after rewarming are still, I mean, very, very important for us to remember in our clinical practice. So quick, quick comment and biochemical test. Are there any biochemical tests that are, are even any views? I've always read about neurospecific enolase as one example, NSC. But to be honest, I don't use it in my practice. It's not available in my hospital. That's something that I think in a lot of the hospitals that we practice, we use routinely. Can you make some comments on that, Fred? Yes. So the biomarkers are sort of like the um, new key on the block. You can call it that way in terms of uh, neuroprognostication. They provide some uh, power uh, in terms of, uh, of prognosis. And in my uh, the power there when you in conjunction with something else in what, what I call the uh, multimodality neuroprognostication scheme. Uh, but biomarkers on, on their own, when you use it alone, don't provide that much of discrimination in terms of, uh, of, of prediction because uh, there are many false positives. So you have to be careful when you're using biomarkers. It's important to emphasize that the recent um, cardiac arrest uh, clinical trial by Nicholas Nielsen didn't use biomarkers uh, for neuroprognostication. The only thing that they used actually was the clinical exam and electrophysiological um, testing uh, for, for neuroprognostication. So you have to be a little bit careful. They collected a lot of data. There are a lot of papers from that particular study uh, that have shown that uh, if you use it in combination, uh, may guide you in terms of uh, providing a, um, a, uh, a likelihood of good, uh, good or bad outcome. So I, I will be careful. The uh, MOSES study one is the uh, NSE. You mentioned it already, the neuronal specific analase. And that has a discriminative power. Uh, there are some levels that can be used as cutoffs. I think the one that is generally accepted is uh, 30 or 33 um, picograms per deciliter. And, and this is the one that uh, when you have it, right, you can actually uh, predict a poor outcome. I've been fooled before by this, and I could tell you that I became more humble in terms of how I interpret this stuff. So just to give you an example, I had a patient that had a level of 70, he came in poor shape, we cooled him, and I 
signed out the patient to my colleague. I said, this guy's never going to recover. I did. I gave my, my spiel to, to the family and then I, I left. And then a week later, I came back to the intensive care unit and the guy's watching TV. And I felt <laughs> a little, um, you know, amazed, you know, about the, uh, about the outcome. But you have to be careful with this thing. You have to be a little bit more uh, conservative and use it with other modalities. Excellent. And I think that it speaks to, to something that, that we'll, we'll probably uh, re, re, uh, readdress and a recurrent topic, which is that a lot of the testing done pre-hypothermia uh, shows that these tools do not perform the same way once we apply hypothermia. So the cutoff of 33 picograms has been very publicized pre-hypothermia, but maybe it's not as predictive when you uh, undergo temperature management post-cardiac arrest. You're right. So, so I think that another area that I think is a lot of interest for us and something that our critical care colleagues do not manage, obviously, as frequently or as well as our neurocritical care or our neurology colleagues are the electrophysiological studies. And to that point specifically, the uh, utilization of either somatosensory evoked potentials or uh, more commonly in a lot of the hospitals that where, where our sound critical care physicians practice is uh, the use of EEG. Could you comment on the on the uh, on both of these and how how you see them? Yes. So um, electrophysiological says, like you mentioned, the uh, evoked potentials, the somatosensory evoked potentials, and the EEG are very powerful. But the timing is the most important thing. So very early on, they have. Uh, very uh, low uh, sensitivity, and uh, you get a lot of false positives for uh, the uh, somatosensory work potentials. When, when, when using clinical trials, it seems that the best performance is usually after 72 hours post-cardiac arrest, and probably a little bit um, later after the rewarming is when I would start using them. I would start probably thinking about SSCPs and analyzing the uh, EEG at around five, seven days post-cardiac arrest, which is you know what we discussed before probably you know, 72 hours after the rewarming. Um, and the reason for this is that if, if you go in the literature, there are a lot of case reports where you get shut down of the SSCPs initially, right? But as you said before, hypothermia has changed that. So the way that I see it is that hypothermia is sort of like this neuroprotectant. It's sort of like shutting down the fire, right? That occurs initially with this reperfusion injury. And it's keeping the neurons in this sort of like sleeping mode, hibernating mode, and preserving them for, for survival. So if you get the SSCPs, you're not going to see anything. And SSCPs are just a way to determining if there is a connection between a peripheral nerve, usually the median nerve, and uh, the cerebral cortex. And the waveforms that you see indicate at what level you see the connection. The waveform that we usually follow is the N27, and that's usually an, an, an analysis of the uh, function of the thalamocortical projections. So uh, by not having that signal, you are assuming that there is a diffuse injury of thalamocortical projections that at the end of the day are the ones that regulate arousal and awakening. So uh, that's how you use SSCPs. But as I mentioned before, if you do it, uh, if you do it too early, you're going to get a, a lot of false positives. In terms of EEGs, a little bit more complex, but even more powerful because now you have a a, a, a way to look at the whole brain and, and, and the waveform activity. And the most important thing is really to look at the background of, of, of the, or the rhythm of, of, of that EEG 
and see if there is reactivity when you are stimulating the patient. That's a powerful predictor of, 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 of good outcome. If you see a change uh, which is consistent with uh, the clinical, I mean, during the clinical exam with, uh, stimulation. So just to give you an example, so uh, you have a patient that has a flat EEG or is diffusely slow, you start examining him, he starts opening the eyes, he starts responding to you, and then you see a pickup in the uh, rhythm in the EEG, that's a good sign. So in that sense, this um, technology enables you, right, to take a look at the patient, um, uh, not just on a cross-sectional um, way, but actually in a dynamic way. You're examining him and seeing what's going on in the brain. So that's why it's so powerful. So, so I guess, uh, Fred, uh, reiterating, it sounds like the SSCPs, um, when done uh, in conjunction with other findings uh, at the right timing, can add to a lot, especially when they're absent. And there's other signs that suggest severe anoxic damage, but they have to be done at 72 hours or later after rewarming. And it sounds like with the EEG, what, what is probably good or powerful is the ability to elicit reactivity in the background activity. And that probably re requires a more involved EEG, not just sending a tech, record the EEG, and then be reported by somebody later on, but more of a specific, the intensivist asking for an EEG for cardiac arrest, anoxic damage evaluation, looking for, to see if there's any reactivity to stimulize. Is that correct? Yes, and and to tell you the truth, you know, um, I could tell you this, even though I could get in trouble with my epilepsy colleagues, right? We always like you that type to... of, of of fact. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 you don't need to be an epileptologist to uh, look for reactivity. You know, it, it's very simple. You can learn this in five minutes at one of the workshops in one of the um, um, society meetings. You know, if you if you see a workshop on EEG after cardiac arrest and you want to learn something about it, right? You could learn how to stimulate a patient and, and look at, at reactivity. It's a very simple process. It doesn't require a lot of, of analysis or training. So, so uh, since we're on the topic of EEG, I would like you to maybe once and for all clarify to all my colleagues the difference and the implications in that difference between a myoclonic jerk in a myoclonic status EEG pattern after cardiac arrest? Yeah, so myoclonic jerks are just muscular jerks, and they're called myoclonic because they are usually originated in the muscle. Most of, 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 of the myoclonus that you see in, in post-cardiac arrest patients do not originate, or you cannot, you know, for whatever reason, you cannot pick them up uh, originating from the cortex. So, you know, most of the myoclonus that you see is usually what we call subcortical. They originate in subcortical networks, even the spinal cord, and, and that's the main difference. It's called myoclonic. It's because of the pattern of the spike that you see in the EEG. It's usually a huge uh, spike uh, with, 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 with very um, long, amp uh, I'm sorry, uh, big amplitude. And the difference between that and myoclonic status is that sometimes you can get those waveforms originating in the cortex and they have that, that the same amplitude and, 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 and they're big, right? But when you pick them up and they are consistent and they evolve and you don't, or you, you, you cannot treat them with conventional therapy, you know, that's what we call this, the, the, the myoclonic status or like syndrome. And in the 1990s, there were a couple of papers saying that if you had that 
right? It was sort of like game over for Scarlett Caress and everyone sort of like learned that. And, um, and, and, and that's how I was, you know, taught, for example, in my residency, that if I saw myoclonic status, uh, that was the end. But what you mentioned at the beginning, hypothermia has changed, right? The natural course of this disease. And now we have learned that if we treat aggressively, not just myoclonic status, but any other type of status that you see post-cardiac arrest, patients can actually survive and, and, and do well. So the aggressiveness of, of the therapy for my, uh, myoclonic or any other type of status uh, should be in accordance with the aggressiveness of cooling. So if you are submitting somebody to cooling, right, and it's awakening, uh, it's awakening and now in the ED you're seeing myoclonic status, you know, most of us would favor a trial of intervention before, uh, you know, concluding that the, that the outcome is going to be poor. So that's what I do in clinical practice. I'm aggressive, you know, treating these patterns in the EEG. And, um, and a couple of papers published recently have shown that if you treat them, they, that patients could do well. So, so my question also regarding the myoclonic jerks, I think that often clinicians see myoclonic activity externally, like the, 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 the muscular jerks, and immediately say this patient has a horrible prognosis, and that has not been shown, right? On the other hand, if you find the myoclonic status on the EEG, especially when it's refractory, that is associated with the worst prognosis. Is that correct? Um, well, the, uh, the, the the classic myoclonus that you see, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's associated with uh, um, that much of, of, of poor prognosis. Uh, anymore after hypothermia. And if you are not seeing myoclonus uh, or myoclonic status in the EEG, even less, the problem is really the myoclonic status is the one that I, I, I would be concerned about because if you don't treat, right, then of course the patient is, is, is gonna do poorly. So, so that's the problem with this, um, with, with, with this issue, right, is that if you don't look for it, then you will never know. Yeah. And in my mind, right, if your institution doesn't have access to continuous EEG, um, you know, you, you, you should be able to either consider, uh, you know, transfer the patient and see, you know, if, if another institution can, can, can deal with it because uh, you're right. I don't think that's, uh, uh, you know, after hypothermia, I don't think it's associated with uh, poor prognosis anymore. The most important thing is that if you diagnose it, if you diagnose it to provide a, clinic, uh, a trial of intervention. Excellent. And I think that moving along with other tools, obviously a very commonly utilized tool is neuroimaging and uh, either in the form of CT scans or uh, MRIs, which as we all know from ordering them after severe anoxic in injuries can sometimes be read as uh, significant uh, patterns that suggest anoxic damage. But we've also seen normal CTs or almost normal CTs in patients who never wake up. So what's the role of imaging in neuroprognostication after cardiac arrest? That's an excellent question, uh, Sergio, and the data is even less convincing that it has enough uh, discriminating power to, to uh, predict outcome on their own. So for imaging, we have um, conventional computerized tomography, CAT scans, and then we have magnetic uh, uh, resonance. So we have MRIs to sort of like help us or aid us in terms of uh, assessing uh, the degree of brain injury. But to tell you the truth, right, when you use them as a single um, 
you, you can call it biomarkers as well, because when you use them as a single biomarker, right, they don't have that much of uh, discrimination. I've seen people that uh, look very bad on MRI, and then eventually they wake up, and, uh, and that tells you about the, uh, the sensitivity and specificity of this testing. The timing is another very important thing. If you do them too early, you might not see a lot of damage, and, uh, and you may conclude that the patient uh, has not sustained damage, and, uh, and, and the reason is because you probably did not wait enough time to, uh, to, to pick it up. So I usually wait about five, seven days to even consider uh, using a test, unless I'm concerned about serial edema and intracranial, intracranial hypertension. So um, there are some variables in the patient uh, characteristics that may indicate uh, which patients may be at higher risk of developing, for example, cerebral edema. At the end of the day, the cause of death in these patients is neurological, uh, is a neurological cause. It's usually cerebral edema leading to herniation. So younger people, you know, prolonged uh, um, return to spontaneous circulation um, are the ones that are probably at higher risk uh, to develop uh, significant cerebral edema. But I usually wait for the MRI. The MRI is sort of like the one tool uh, that, uh, that I know researchers are concentrating on right now. And there are specific things on the MRI that they are looking for. And you know, the burden of anoxia, the burden of diffusion-weighted um, lesions, for example, uh, volumetric analysis, you know, sort of like track recognition, meaning uh, tensor analysis in the MRI are the tools, which are very advanced tools in MRI that they are using to determine uh, prognosis. I think that those are more specific, uh, but I don't think they are ready for uh, clinical use. So, you know, you have to be careful with how you interpret that as well. So this is why I'm saying using a multi-modality approach is a better way to go. Excellent. So I guess really it's just a piece of the puzzle, but you could have a normal or almost normal CT scan and never wake up, or you could have some signs that suggest anoxic damage and still recover. So I think that not enough to just hang our hat on, on that imaging, but obviously it's something that very commonly patient families are requesting and they they believe that the, the CT scan or, or, or the MRI will really give us a, a lot of information. So, and, and it does. I mean, um, I mean, sometimes patients have combination of injuries. I mean, you know, um, you know, sometimes patients um, have hemorrhages, uh, you know, or or something happens during the cardiac arrest that you don't know. Some people fall, and then eventually they have uh, some additional injury. You know, people uh, can have strokes or could have uh, embolism, right, and resuscitation. That um, that if you see them in, in, in CAT scan or MRI, can give you more uh, um, ideas in terms of how to think about the prognosis for. Because, you know, uh, if, you know if, if you have a cardiac arrest, but then on top of that, right, you have bilateral MCA strokes for whatever reason, you know, uh, you know embolism or hypoperfusion because you were in shock for so many uh, hours, right? Then, you know, that adds to uh, the prognosis. You have to be a little bit more um, uh, um, uh, careful in terms of interpreting uh, additional findings, not just anoxia. Excellent. So I think that uh, kind of as, as we're trying to close the loop, 
Let's talk a little bit about the timing of neuroprognostication. And I think that you mentioned earlier, Fred, that after the card immediately after a cardiac arrest, it's really hard to make any prognosis, right? If we decide we're going to treat these patients aggressively, we should undergo therapeutic hypothermia or target temperature management, complete the 24 hours at the specified target, rewarm them. And once they're back to, to normal thermia, let's call that time zero. What happens after that? How would you handle the timing of your neuroprognostication? Yeah, so this is a great question. So uh, I, uh, uh, I usually quote a paper from the University of Pennsylvania by Ben Avella and uh, David Gajewski, where they actually looked at uh, the, the notes, right, that neurologists um, wrote in patients after cardiac arrest, and you see all the sort of like super early or ultra early uh, assessment of prognosis, and, 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 you know, and when you read the paper, they quote, poor prognosis, you know, devastating disease, you know, um, unlikely to recover. So I, you know, uh, if, if, if the uh, listeners want to remember only one thing after this podcast is that you really have to be more conservative in terms of uh, prognosticating and don't uh, um, rush to judgment, right? And write these uh, comments in your notes so early because, I mean, you more, more likely you will be wrong. And, uh, and, and this is why I said at the beginning, you know, I've been humbled before about this condition. So, um, you know, the, 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 the clearest and more on uh, the strongest evidence, right, uh, that you have to wait to uh, do a, an accurate assessment is the Nicholas Nielsen uh, study that basically uh, rewarmed and then uh, kept on neurothermia for 72 hours and then waited a period of almost 72 hours to assess for um, uh, neurological prognosis. So that's sort of like the best evidence and thus sort of like the standard, right, is to wait at least 72 hours post um, rewarming to start considering any neuroprognostication. And it's an important message that you need to convey to the families because families want to know upfront, right? What's the likelihood of survival? What's the likelihood of, of recovery? This patient is very hard to determine in the era of hypothermia if you have exposed the patient to cooling. So the, the message is probably wait 72 hours post uh, uh, thermia, you know, to start looking at all of these biomarkers. And by the way, they take a while to come back. So you send an NSE, if you have availability like we do at my institution, it takes about 72 hours to come back. So it gives you a lot of time to see, you know, before you conclude anything, uh, how the patient is doing on the clinical basis, right? And, and enables you to get an MRI or SSCPs or a continuous EEG within that time frame. So, and I think that, that, that along those lines, what I always say is that if you have a patient who clearly has advanced directives or comorbidities or situations that you truly believe are a horrible prognosis to begin with, I think it makes sense not to do critical care, period. So you wouldn't put them on a ventilator. You wouldn't take them to the cath lab. You wouldn't admit them to the ICU. You wouldn't do the hypothermia. But short of that, if you're intubating people, calling cardiology, you should protect the brain, and you should give people a chance to recover. So it sounds like the the most important take-home message is that after the hypothermia, you got to rewarm them, and from that rewarming, the clock starts zero, wait 72 hours of good support, and then start implementing these tools. And as you gather information after the 72 hours of rewarming, 
you are probably in a better position to share with the family what is the most likely outcome based on that information. Is that correct? Yeah, so yeah, I agree. I think that's a great approach. I think that uh, you know, waiting it's it's probably the best thing to do. And and in your in your practice, Fred, um, what are the tools that you that you use on a regular basis in terms of your multimodality uh, neuro evaluation for these patients? So I, as I said at the beginning, the clinical exam, right? That's very important. Second thing that I use is continuous EEG. Uh, all of these patients in our institution are mon monitored by continuous EEG. And you would ask me why, and the reason is because, you know, if they're in a coma, right, uh, there's no way of knowing what's going on in the brain. And by the way, you know, um, the most critical part of the temperature management is a rewarming phase. And I know that you said you're going to have a, an additional podcast, and I think that, you know, for that podcast, you need to concentrate on the rewarming phase. With continuous EEG, you could see changes in the um, – electrophysiology that could indicate, for example, worsening cerebral edema and risk of herniation. And that, in, in, in our protocol, right, indicates that you need to go back and recool the patient. So if you see uh, changes in the amplitude of the EEG, for example, while you're rewarming, we will come back and, and keep the patient cool for an additional day until we can start the rewarming phase again. So, you know, those tools are so, so powerful, not just for prognosis, but also for clinical management at the bedside. So that's the second tool that I use. The third tool is um, SSCPs. Uh, I do it usually uh, 72 hours uh, post-rewarming. And then finally, uh, the NLAs. Uh, I usually send the NLAs at the third day post-cardiac arrest. I don't do it immediately. I wait uh, day number three and then I send the NLAs. And then finally, MRI, um, but more to give me an idea if there's any additional injury because I've seen bad MRIs that actually don't translate into uh, a poor outcome, right? So uh, what the MRI tells me is more of, you know, is the patient gonna have a lot of cognitive impairment, for example, you know? Um, or did the patient have a dissection and now he has a stroke in the posterior circulation? Uh, the dissection occurred before cardiac arrest or CPR, you know, that sort of thing. And does the patient need additional treatment for it? You know, um, ask, you name it, aspirin or an evaluation. Um, so uh, those four tools are the ones that I use um, in my clinical practice. Excellent. Well, I think that uh, we definitely, I mean, enjoyed talking with you, Fred, about this topic specifically about the neuroprognostication. I know that the Neurocritical Care Society and the American Academy of Neurology are working on the uh, hypothermia or neuroprotective uh, guidelines, and they'll be cooking up soon. So we'll probably have you back to talk in more details about uh, targeted temperature management. But uh, as, as we close, I would like to first uh, thank you for your generosity with your time and your knowledge. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, well, I'm sure that we'll talk again sh shortly. But I also, uh, since in critical matters, we really try to cover all aspects of practicing critical care, would like to close with a, with a couple of questions that are a little bit off the, off the topic, but I think super relevant to what we do as physicians, to what we do as providers in the world of critical care. Would that be okay? Yes. So the first question I have for you, and a lot of, uh, of, uh, of, of our friends and a lot of our listeners know that I'm an avid reader and always interesting in picking up new things to read or to gift. Is there a book or books that have influenced you the most 
or what book in particular have you gifted the most to others? So um, I have gifted a lot of uh, books before, and um, and 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 I, you know, so like uh, um, uh, you know, books that I've read when I was in in high school and and when I was younger. But the one of the books that have actually influenced me a lot, and this is recently, <laughs> because I became a bioethicist um, uh, recently, is um, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And uh, it, it's like an excellent book if you're dealing with um, a lot of problems in life and critical care is just about problems, right? So, uh, you know, I find it, you know, inspiring in terms of, you know, telling me, uh, you know, how to react in uh, critical conditions or in um, environments that, that have a lot of conflict, right? So um, if I were to gift a book, you know, to a friend or something, it would probably be Meditations from Marcus Aurelius. Excellent choice. And I think that it just speaks how friends uh, think alike. It's one of my favorite books. I have several copies in my house and people who've stayed in my house as guests usually go with one of these. Some of them enjoy it. Some of them say, not for me, but I do agree with you. I think that story <laughs> philosophy applies to what we do so powerfully, is a great guide in terms of how to deal with adversity, but more importantly, which I think is important for critical care practitioners, it really talks about how to be humble and how to really focus on the things that we can control. And I think that that's a, that's a great, a great, a great book. Another question, is there anything that, or what do you believe to be true in medicine or in life that many people or most people around you don't believe in? Um, you know, I, 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 I think that uh, I've been humbled by my profession a lot. And uh, when I became a physician, right, I became a physician to help and to uh, restore, to prolong life. Uh, and I think most people believe, right, that uh, we are immortal sometimes and that, um, that there is no end. And in my mind, um, I, I think we have to understand that there's always a beginning and there's always an end and both are physiological uh, processes, you know. Of course, some are, um, have, you know, better uh, impact in your mood and in your, in, your, in your state of happiness, right? But I don't think a lot of people understand that, uh, you know, uh, there's an end to everything, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, you know, sometimes, you know, even colleagues, you know, physicians, uh, providers and understand that sometimes when the end is coming, you have to probably uh, stop, you know, what you're doing. And that's the part that I think is very hard to, to, to acknowledge, right? That, that life ends. Yep. And I think that the, that's a great point. I think that uh, actually your friend Marcos Aurelius and the Stoics talked about memento mori, remember you will yep. die. And I think that as yep. a way of uh, guiding what we do every day with the precious time we have, I think it, it's very valuable, but also something that we should share and when we talk with our with our with our with our with our patients i think is very very valuable so that that's a that's a great point and i think that you're absolutely right and the, the last question fred is is there anything in particular that you would want every intensivist in sound critical care to know um it's it, it's sort of like along the same lines that we've been discussing sergio is to understand and i say this from an ethical perspective, um, you know, it, 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 you know, ethically and morally, uh, it's okay to stop. It's okay to uh, consider 
um, you know, stopping life-sustaining therapies uh, when you think that they are not doing any good and actually harming the patient. I think that as intensivists, you know, as I said, you know, one of the reasons why I, why I went to medicine was to help and, and prolong life and all that stuff. And it was really like ingraining my life. Then when I went into critical care, I suddenly realized that I was actually living in a life or death environment. And sometimes I needed to make decisions to allow that normal process of, 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 of death to happen. And, you know, it takes a lot of courage to sort of like recognize when you need to stop something. And, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, the intensivist is the skipper. The intensivist is the captain of that, of that team. And in that sense, there's a lot of responsibility for a critical care doctor, right? Um, you know, to guide the team in a way that, uh, you know, it's in the best interest for the patient. And, um, and understanding that sometimes uh, stopping is probably the best way to go. So I would like everyone to understand that concept as well. Uh, most of us do it, and, and I'm glad. And, um, and, and if everyone that is listening understands it, then I'm happy. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Fred, again, a pleasure, a treat for me to talk with you about these topics. We will have to revisit some of these topics and, and go deeper in some specifics regarding targeted temperature management. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and your generosity, and I uh, look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you, Sergio. Thanks again for listening to Critical Matters. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play.